Uh, we have been in a series working through the book of Romans, and today we continue in Romans chapter 7. Just a little bit of review here. Romans chapter 6 and 7, Paul anticipates some questions that some of his audience may have had uh, based on his justification by faith doctrine that he's been teaching in the first five chapters. And when he gets to Romans chapter 6, the question that he asks is, should we continue in sin because God's willing to forgive us? In other words, um, would it be okay for us to just uh, have at it and open the floodgates and have all the fun we want to have. And Paul says, by no means, are you crazy? And then he goes on to address the question in verse 7 of what is the purpose of the Old Testament law? And so last week we talked about what the purpose of the Old Testament law was, that God gave it to show us that we're sinners. God gave us this high bar, showed us what it was, what His holiness requires, so that we could see ourselves as the sinners who we really are. Um, God didn't give us a low bar so that we could say, hey, you know what, I'm acceptable, I'm good, everything's fine. But God gave us the high bar of His expectations so that we could see what it was that we fall short of, so we could see our ourselves as sinners. He continues with that same line of thinking today as he talks about the law. And today he's going to talk about his struggle with sin. Now I have a question for you. And this question, and we're going to read the text here in just a little bit. But as we're reading through this text, I'd like for you to think about this question. The question is, is Paul talking about, he's talking about his struggle with sin. Is he talking about his struggle with sin before he was a Christian, or is he talking about his struggle with sin after he became a Christian? Is it a present struggle that he has in that moment as he's writing Romans chapter 7, or is it something he's referring to that happened in his past, the struggle that he used to have? So y'all decide which one you think it is. Let's stand and read together from, the, from God's Word. Romans chapter 7, we'll be reading verses 14 through 19. This is perhaps some of the most um, well-known passages of Scripture, perhaps the most comforting passage of Scripture for a lot of folks, because it, here is the Apostle Paul talking about his own struggle with sin. So let's read together Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Last verse. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You may be seated. And that was a mouthful, was it not? Um, so uh, what do you think? Is Paul talking about his former way of life uh, before he became a Christian, or is Paul kind of in the present? Is he talking about his current struggle with sin? Well, theologians down through the ages have been on both sides of this issue. Uh, Bible-believing, washed-in-the-blood-of-Jesus, born-again Christians have been on both sides of this issue. And people that are on the one side of the issue that say Paul is talking about his former way of life, they argue that how could the apostle Paul a man of such great spiritual maturity, be somebody who seems to sin with such regularity and with so much compulsion. And so that's kind of the, who you see. Paul presents himself here as somebody who sins with regularity and with compulsion. They say, how could that possibly be? And so they would argue then, out of that rationale, that look, it doesn't look like the Apostle Paul is talking about his current present struggle with sin, but he's talking about his past struggle. Then there are people on the other side of that issue that would say, no, I think Paul really is talking about his present struggle with sin, that even the Apostle Paul has problems with sin, and that that is consistent with the, with the majority of the experience of most believers down through the ages, um, again, even the Apostle Paul. So which is it? Well, let's take a look. 
Um, this is, uh, well, let's take a look. We'll start at Romans chapter uh, 7 and verse 14. Is Paul talking about his former way of life, or is he talking about himself presently as a believer today? Verse 14, for we know, uh, notice the present tense there. Uh, you're going to see this all throughout these verses, that Paul is writing these verses in the present tense, and that should be a clue to us. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, he doesn't say I was, he says I am, of the flesh. Middle of verse 15, he says, for I do not do what I want, again, writing in the present, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if Paul had been talking about some past action that he used to take, then Paul should have written that verse this way. He should have written it to say, for I did not do what I wanted, but instead I did the very thing I hated. But again, Paul writes it in the present tense. Again, that should be a clue to us as to at what point in Paul's life he's talking about here. Verse 17, so now, referring to the present, so now it is no longer I who did it. Are y'all with me? Is the slide on verse 17? All right, he says, it's no longer I who do this, who do it, uh, but sin that dwells in me. Now, I got a slide here for you, and it shows uh, the verbs that Paul uses in verses 14 through 19. Um, and so in verses 14 through 19, he uses verbs like know, am, understand, do, uh, want. And again, those are all verbs that are written in the present tense. So again, that should be an indicator to us that Paul is referring to a struggle that he has right now in the present. Now compare that to the testimony of Paul's personal life that he gives us uh, beginning in verse 7. In verses 7 through 13, he also talks about a struggle that he's had. But in that, those verses, the context of those verses, it's quite clear that Paul is talking about his life before he became a believer. And we talked about this last week, how the law of covetousness was the one that got Paul. Um, Paul says, I believe it's in verse 7, he says, you know, the law of you shall not covet was the one that kind of made me see that I really am a sinner. He's like, I could, I could keep all the outward steps of the law. I could go to the temple and make my sacrifices. I could do all the things outwardly that were required of me. I could not shake hands with a Gentile. I could not sit down at a table with a Gentile. Those were outward things that I could control. He says, but that law, that one about covetousness, that dealt with the man on the inside. And he's like, I realized that I could not prevent myself from doing that. That was something on the inside that I couldn't help from bubbling up to the surface. And so he says in verse 7 there, uh, that he says, I would not, past tense, have known of sin. He says in verse 8, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me, past tense, all kinds of covetousness. Now, when we compare these two together, so I've created a list for you here. The verses that he uses are the verbs that he uses in verses 14 through 19, and the verses that he uses in verse 7 through 13, two times when he gives us some personal testimony. The second of those, verses 14 through 19, he's giving us a personal testimony of his personal struggle with sin. I believe, there I am, I said it, I believe, right? I'm supposed to just tell you what, I, what God thinks, but on this occasion, I'm having to say, hey, look, I've wrestled with the text, and this is where I think it comes out. I believe that Paul's talking about his present struggle with sin because when you look at the tenses of the verbs, when he's talking about his former way of, way of life, it's very clear those verbs are all in the past tense. And so you can see that played out in those two lists. Now, there's a lot more to this. Uh, there's a lot more uh, argument back and forth between people, good people, Bible-believing people. Please don't hear me say anything other than that. These are wonderful Christians. But they come out on different sides of this issue. Is Paul talking about his life before he was a Christian or is Paul talking about his current struggle with sin? Um, I just, the evidence in the text lends me to want to think that Paul's talking about his present struggle with sin. And I've shared this with you before, that we want to be good students of the Word to, in order to correctly handle the Word of truth. We have to start with the Bible and then work out from there. We have to start with the grammatical 
evidences in the text. We have to start with a contextual, uh, what's going on in history, what's going on uh, literarily, what Paul's writing about, and then work, build our conclusions out from there, our doctrine out from there, rather than starting with predetermined conclusions like, I don't see how a mature Christian could be reg sinning regularly and have compulsive sin in their life, and then trying to go searching for a Bible verse that proves that. You follow me? So we, in order for God's Word to be the final authority in all things, we have to start with God's Word and build our lives upon it outward, okay? So that's, uh, that's, that's my little biblical interpretation 101 class for you, all right? So uh, verse 16, let's move on. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. Let's stop right there. When Paul uses all through these verses here, and uh, he uses the word law in, in different ways. This particular occasion, clearly he's talking about the Old Testament law, and he's saying that I, I want to do the right thing. I want to do what's honorable and what's obedient to the law of God. I want to keep God's laws. I want to obey the Ten Commandments. That is in me to want to do. And he says, when I do those things, I feel good about myself. When I do those things, my conscience is not giving me a hard time. And so because my conscience is not giving me a hard time, when I obey those commands, then it, show, it proves that the law is good. Remember, that's the big argument he's been having here all through chapter 7. Is the law good? What's the purpose of the law? And he's saying, look, the law is good because when I do it, it doesn't tell me I've done something wrong. In fact, just the opposite. It tells me I've done something right. Is if, if, I, if, I dis, if I did what the law required, if I did obey the Ten Commandments, and I felt dirty, I felt bad about myself, then that would confirm that there's something wrong with the law. But Paul's saying, look, there's nothing wrong with God's expectations for our lives. Those are perfect, they're pure, they're holy, they're righteous. Remember, we talked about that last week. Um, Verse 17, so the law is good. Verse 17, so it, now it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells within me. So there is the problem. There's the problem. The problem is not the law. The problem is not God's expectations. The problem is that I have this sinful nature, this sinful bent that lives on the inside of me, this force on the inside of me that's driving me to do things that I don't want to do. It overpowers my desire to do good. It overturns my commitment to obey the righteous law of God. It overcomes my best intentions. It overwhelms my best motives. And it runs contrary to my desire to live in obedience to what God's word says. Paul says that is the problem. That's what he's pointing to here. Verse 18. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You see, the problem for Paul is not an issue of sincerity. Paul is very sincere. He sincerely wants to keep the laws of God. He wants to live in obedience to God. The problem for Paul is not knowledge. Paul knows what's right from what's wrong. The problem for Paul is not education. He doesn't need to sit in another Bible study. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the most important rabbi of Paul's day. And Paul was only one of three students that Gamaliel would take on at a time. Paul, Paul, Paul is educated through the roof, right? The problem is not his sincerity. The problem is not his knowledge. The problem is not his, uh, his education. The problem for Paul is one of power. It's one of power. It's that he doesn't have the power to overcome his sinful nature, this force living on the inside of him. Verse 19 says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And if that's the case, then what that means is that the sin that dwells inside of Paul is part of the warp and whoop of who he is, right? It's part of him, his nature. And that that power inside of him um, is overpowers his desire to do what's right, and it's more powerful than, than that. 
Paul goes on to say, and I'll just read these for you, verses 20 through 23. He says, Now if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's pointing toward this force on the inside of him. He's, he's unpacking here a doctrine of the sinful nature. Verse 21, For I find it to be a law, that is a fact of life, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Verse 22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Paul is saying there that I really want to do what's right. I want to honor God's word. I want to be obedient to him. I want him to, to, to feel good about what I'm doing in the life that I'm living. He says, but I don't possess the power to live that way. And the reason that he doesn't have it is in verse 23. He says, I see in my members, in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind, which wants to do right. And not only making war against me, but it's bringing me into captivity. It's making me a captive to the ruling power of sin in his life that dwells in his members. Paul says, no matter how hard I try, no matter how sincere I am, no matter how many leaves I turn over, I keep falling short of the goal of trying to live up to God's standards. And that's Romans chapter 7. Now, I don't know about you, but... I believe that most people are like Paul. Most people want to do what's right. Most people want to live an honest life. They want to be fair and they're equitable in their treatment of other people. Most people want to be loving and comforting and, and compassionate toward other people. Most of us want that. Most people that you interact with, that's the life that they would choose if they could choose a life to live. But Paul says that there's a force living on the inside of us that's warring against that, that's pushing against that, that's causing us to stumble and fall. Um, I, some of you may remember um, our youth pastor from many years back ago here at Hebron, a guy by the name of Russell Wall. Russell was a really jolly guy. He was very kind-hearted and always friendly, and he was always warm and inviting, great person to be around. And I remember Russell said to me one time, he said, you know what, I always try to give people the benefit of the doubt. And in saying that, what's he mean? What does he mean by the benefit of the doubt? Well, he's saying that I believe that on the inside of people, that their intentions toward me are honorable, are noble. And I want to believe that. And he said, and because of that, anytime I interact with somebody, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that that's indeed why they're coming to me with the question they're coming to me with, why it is that they're raising the issues with me, if they're raising me with me. And he says, because I believe that their intentions are good and noble. And that's what Paul is saying here, is that like himself, most people, including most Christians, are trying as hard as they can to do what's right. For example, most moms and dads are trying to give their kids the very best upbringing that they know how. Most teachers are trying to educate their students and prepare them for a bright future. I really do believe that. Most doctors and nurses want to give their patients the very best care that they can. And so I don't find it a bit of a problem to admit here that Paul is sincere in saying that he really does want to do what's right. It's just that there's this force on the inside of him that's causing him to do things that the Apostle Paul doesn't want to do. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, I don't know that I buy that. I don't see how somebody can be forced to do something that they don't want to do. Well, let me give you an example here. Um, if, uh, if you're out on 316, things can get a little hairy out there. Some people like to drive a little quick. And you're riding down 316, and say the speed limit is 55 miles an hour, and you are committed to going 55 miles an hour. And in your rearview mirror, way back, there's this truck. And this truck gets getting closer and closer in your rearview mirror until finally you can read the big words Mac in your rearview mirror. I mean, this thing is just dancing on the back of your bumper. 
Well, all of a sudden, you're going to feel some compulsion on the inside of you, and you're going to start to push down that accelerator a little harder. And next thing you know, you're doing 58. Maybe you're committed to doing 55. Next thing you know, you're doing 62. You're doing 65. Perhaps you're even going faster than that because you want to put some distance between yourself and that Mack truck. Friends, there is an example of how something can compel us, can push us, can shove us to do something that we're committed not to. To do. And Paul says it's the same thing with our sinful nature that's down on the inside of us. It's pushing us, it's compelling us, no matter how much we want to honor God and to live up to his expectations, it seems like we're always falling short. And that's what Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 7. Um, he concludes chapter 7 with those words um, I find myself doing the evil that I don't want to do. All right, well, that's our text for today, and so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, the pollen count's up. Yeah. So, I mean, what difference does any of this make to me? Um, how does this help me? Is, is pollen part of the sinful, you know, is it part of the fall? I don't know. Um, but in any case, uh, you know, you're kind of like, Gordon, you can do depress me here this morning. I mean, it almost seems like you just told me that I can't overcome sin and, and that I just, it's just something that's got to happen. It's almost like it's inevitable. So what difference does any of this make to me? Well, that's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Um, let me say, first of all, that sin is not inevitable. Sin is not inevitable. You and I can have victory over sin. You might refer to that as the victorious Christian life. We can. And Paul's going to show us how here in just a few moments. But before we get to that, I want you to notice that the person that Paul is describing in verses 14 through 19 is someone who is trying to overcome sin by his own efforts. By his own efforts. For example, verse 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire." to do what is right. And throughout this whole section, what you'll see is the Apostle Paul talking about himself and saying how he's been the one that's been trying to do this. He's been the one that's been attempting to overcome sin and through his own raw determination. Verse 15, he says, For I do not do the good that I want, for I do the very thing that I hate. Again, he's just he's trying to muster himself to overcome this. He's trying to make his own victory. Verse 19, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do is what I keep on doing. Paul says back in verse 14, he says, I am of the flesh. That's right, and he's trying to beat this spiritual battle with his flesh. In these verses, verses 14 through 19, where Paul describes his struggle with sin, he uses the word I 16 times in just six verses. 16 times in just six verses. And that's, to us, we should, that should stir something in us. It should prick something in our minds to say, oh, what Paul's saying here is that he's saying that he's been trying to be the one that overcomes and has this victorious Christian life. Let me change subject for just a second. We'll tie back in here in a moment. Question to you. Did you forgive your own sins? And the answer is, Survey says, no, no, you didn't. Uh, you got your sins forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross, right? Are, are you going to earn your way into heaven? No. Are you going to earn your way into heaven by coming to church enough or, or by, you know, logging enough quiet times or, or reading the Bible through every year enough times? I mean, are you going to earn your salvation, earn your way into heaven? No, we know we're not going to earn our way into salvation. Um, it's, it's, the way we gain salvation, the way that we get to heaven is by putting our faith and our trust 
in the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross plus nothing else. We look to what Jesus did on the cross. We put our faith there for eternity. We trust that work as what's going to be my means for getting into heaven. That Jesus did it all. He paid it all, right? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's not the blood of Jesus and Gordon's good works. It's the blood of Jesus. So, we put, so my point is that salvation, gaining access to heaven, gaining a right relationship and right standing with God is inaugurated by faith, right? I don't do anything to earn it. I don't do anything to deserve it. I just put my faith in what Jesus did. So why is it then that so many believers put, start our Christian walk by faith, but then we live the Christian life by works? Isn't that what Paul's describing here? That we start the Christian life by faith, but that we walk it out by works. Paul reveals to us in these verses that he tried to do that. He tried of his own effort and his own strength to overcome sin through his own self-discipline and through his own raw determination. He said, I do, I know, I want, I have, I understand. That's all through these verses. And it ended for Paul in dismal failure such that he would finally conclude in verse 24, oh, wretched man that I am. I can't, I can't beat this. And then he asked the question in a few verses later, who will save me from this body of death? Friends, we start the Christian life by faith. We should live the Christian life by depending and trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross to help us live out this Christian life. And we should exit this life by depending and trusting on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It starts with faith. It's lived out by faith, by Christ's strength. And it's concluded in faith, right? You say, well, was Paul aware of this? Yes, Paul was very much aware of this. Let's keep reading. Verse 24, he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because clearly I can't do it. Who can turn the tide and help me? I'm at the bottom of a very deep, dark well, and there's no way for me, Paul says, to get out of this. I can't win. There's nothing I can do about it myself. Who is going to help me? And it won't be Paul, and it won't be Gordon, and it won't be you, because we've all got the same problem. I mean, I can't come to the Apostle Paul and say, Paul, hey, look, let's get into accountability together, and whenever you feel yourself sinning, you shoot me a text message, and I'll pray for your brother. And then you pull out your Bible, and you read that Bible whenever you feel sin coming on, and you just make sure, and you do all these things, and I'll, I'll stand there alongside of you, and Paul, between the two of us, we'll make sure that you get victory over this stuff. No, friends, because I've got the same problem. I can't give Paul what Paul needs to overcome sin in his life. I can't help Paul live a victorious Christian life. I've got the same problem Paul's got. P.S., right? Shh. I've got the same problem Paul's got, right? So Paul's saying, who's going to turn this tide? Verse 25, who's going to help Paul? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. There is your answer. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The great commentator Griffin Thomas wrote of Romans chapter 7 these words. He said, the point of this passage that we've just been studying, the point of this passage is that it describes the person who is trying to be good and holy by their own efforts and who is beaten back every time by the power of indwelling sin. It is a graphic setting forth of our own helplessness in obtaining victory over sin in our own strength and our own efforts. Paul's experience is the experience of any person who tries, to, tries it, whether he be born again 
or not. And friends, that's what Romans chapter 7 is all about. It is reminding us of our utter helplessness to obey the law of God by our own efforts, by our own strength. We can't overcome it. We've got this thing living on the inside of us, this compulsion, this sinful nature that's bent towards sin, and it's pushing us, it's shoving us to want to do something that we really don't want to do. And Paul says there's no way you can have victory over that by your own strength. You know, at this point I should say that if you are content with your Christian life looking like Romans chapter 7 and your testimony being Romans 7 and verse 19, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. If you are fine with that as your testimony, then go no further. Accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers you. We will see you in heaven one day, and that's wonderful. You can raise your kids and do your best. The church is here for you. But if in addition, your desire is to hunger and thirst after righteousness and to want to see real victory in your life over sin, if you have a desire to have that kind of victory, and friends, that victory can be yours. Sin is not inevitable. There's no magic wiffle dust. You say, well, how are we going to do that? Come up front and let you sprinkle the wiffle dust on me? No, that's not how we're going to do that. Come up front and have the elders lay hands on and pray for you that you'll be able to overcome it? No, friends, that's not how it's going to happen. There's no magic formula here or action that we might take that's going to cause that sinful nature to go away. And so just as clear as I can say it, here's how you can have victory over sin in your life. Get on your knees every day and stay there until God says, we're done here. Get on your knees and stay there every day until God says, we're done here. Friends, there is no substitute for prayer. Prayer is the place where we are remade. Prayer is the place where we are healed of all the things that are unraveling in us. Prayer is the place where God rebuilds and reshapes and remolds. It's the place where a guy who was angry like Paul was could become like Christ. He could become joy and peace and patience. Prayer is where that happens. Jesus himself needed prayer. I mean, where did Jesus find the next day's sermon? Well, he'd go up on a mountaintop at night and spend time in private conversation with the Father. Where did Jesus recover from a day's draining efforts of performing miracles and counseling with people and preaching sermons? He found it in quiet time with the Father. Friends, there is no substitute for prayer. Again, if all you want is to get to heaven when you die to learn some good things about theology, to know who God is, then invite Jesus into your life. We encourage you to do that. Come to church. Participate in small group. Read your Bible. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you want more, if you want victorious Christian living, a life that has victory over sin, get on your knees every day and stay there until God says, we're done here. You know, next Sunday is Easter Sunday, and so I just want to lay a challenge out in front of you to begin this habit in your life. Perhaps it becomes a lifetime 
habit for you. But start this week. Just spend some time every day, maybe five minutes, maybe ten minutes. I don't know how long you need. God does. And just spend some time in God's presence. Let the noise of the day, leave your cell phone in another room. Let the noise of the day, did they have cell phones back in Jesus' day? <laughs> let the noise of the day grow quiet and let God's voice be the only voice that you begin to hear. And begin that process. Begin that lifelong habit. And friends, I promise you that you will eventually grow to a place of maturity where you have victory over sin in your life. Where you declare like the Apostle Paul declared, Oh, wretched man that I am God, I see now there's no way that I could overcome this by my own efforts. I need you every day, fresh and new, your Holy Spirit washing and cleansing over my heart. I need that every day. I want to close out today by just telling you a short story about a missionary that you probably never heard of. Um, he was, I was just reading an article this morning look, when I was looking for a picture of him. That was a stink bug. <laughs> Bye-bye. Trying to steal the thunder, right? <laughs> you know, this is uh, off, off subject, but I'll just tell you this. Um, my father-in-law, years ago, uh, attended a different church over in Monroe, and um, they had a rat problem in the church. And so um, he found the rat, and it was in the pastor's office. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> Missionary that you've never heard of, a guy by the name of E. Stanley Jones. Perhaps you may have heard me mention him before. I think I got a picture of him for you. Yeah, there he is. He's actually, you see who he's meeting with? Can you tell who that is? India. Gandhi, that's right. So this guy was uh, born in the late 1800s, lived till uh, in the 1970s, uh, East Stanley Jones did. Um, he was a missionary in India and was an evangelist across six continents. Um, he was a man of incredible, uh, prolific writer, um, had a deep, deep relationship with the Lord that just emanated from him. Um, he was an amazing man. And I, you've heard me mention about him before. I've read many of his books, and I would encourage you to check him out sometime. Um, but E. Stanley Jones had a habit, and his habit was that he felt like the best part of his day, when he was most alert and active and, and ready to engage, was between 5 o'clock and 6 o'clock p.m. every day. And so what he would do was he would go into his private prayer time between 5 and 6 o'clock p.m. every day. Now, this is a guy who was sought after for his counsel. Um, he would meet with heads of state. But if that meeting happened to overlap his prayer time, he would take a time out from whoever he was talking with. He would say, sir, ma'am, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to ha go and have my time of prayer. I'll be see you in an hour. And he would go hunting for a quiet place, and he would spend that hour in prayer. But he felt like prayer was so vital and so important to remolding him and reshaping him to be the person that Everybody else needed him to be, to be able to be a man who had great vision from God, to be a man who was joy when you met him, a man who had peace in his heart when you met him. He said, if I don't have that time with God, I'm just no good for God that day. Friends, my challenge to us, my invitation to us, is that we can be content to walk through this life 
and live out the Christian life and have heaven as our home. And that is a wonderful thing. Don't let, please don't hear me putting that to the side. But if you want more, if your heart is to hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God, if you want victorious Christian living, friends, it can be yours. And it starts by finding that quiet place and spending it with God, spending that time with him and being willing, committed to stay there until God says, we're done here. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we just thank you so much for speaking to us from your word today. We thank you for Paul and for his willingness to share about his own struggles in his life. Lord, we, we have all kinds of things. I don't, I don't know what it is that each of us is wrestling with. Lord, you do. And for some of us, Lord, we've tried for years to get victory, and we just haven't been able to finally cross that mountaintop and head down the other side. God, we just ask that you'd give us that fresh vision today to see that victory can be ours. It takes a commitment on our part. It takes spending time in quiet with you. Lord, that's not always the best, most inviting place to be because we start seeing ourselves the way you see us, and sometimes that can get a little ugly. But Lord, give us the courage and the perseverance to stay in that quiet place until, Lord, you are finished with us for that day. As we come now to celebrate your broken body and your shed blood, Lord Jesus, just encourage us in our hearts. Remind us again of your great love for us. Lord, we commit this quiet time to you. Speak to us, we pray, in Christ's holy name. Amen. The communion elements are there in the seat in front of you. We invite you to share. If you would like to today, as we're worshiping and closing out our song, to just come and bow your knee at the front and just spend some time in prayer, we invite you to do that. Let's go to the Lord in communion.